This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Over the past several months, groups of parents have been confronting school boards across the United States, expressing their concerns about school closures, treatment of American history, the content of sex education, and much more. There are three school board members recalled in a special election held in San Francisco, and this was a recall election because they were too liberal, not because they were too conservative, even in San Francisco. So the National School Boards Association has expressed a concern about all this parental activism and, and even asked the Department of Justice to investigate and the Department of Justice is saying that they are investigating. I don't know what they're actually doing, but presumably something is uh, ongoing in that space. Well, does that mean that parent groups are now a force in American education that rivals that of the teachers unions, which we've heard about uh, as a powerful force in school board politics and state politics for, for many years. Well, we have an expert on um, the power of unions in education politics and policymaking with us on the Education Exchange today, Michael Hartney. He's a professor at Boston College and a Hoover Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, has a new book out. Michael Hartney's new book is How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions in American Education. It's soon to appear. It's being published by the University of Chicago Press. So, Michael, congratulations on the publication of your new book, and uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Well, Michael, you're an expert on teacher unions, but you also have to look at teacher unions in comparison to other groups in uh, education policy, politics and policymaking. So how do you compare the power of teacher unions to that of parent groups? Parent groups have been around a long time. We have the PTA. My mother was a member of the PTA. Uh, we've had the Tea Party, which was really focused on education uh, at the local level initially. And we've had uh, the parents union and we've had many parent groups active over the years. So how do you compare the unions to this other substantial force in education politics? I think the first thing that you have to do is separate out um, moments of exuberance or sort of major um, changes in education politics that are episodic from sort of the more day-to-day -day situation. And um, if you look back over time, what's pretty clear and what I set out to establish in the book is that teachers unions are active and they are influential year in and year out. Now that doesn't mean they sometimes can't be defeated by parents. Uh, you alluded to a recall election that took place in San Francisco recently. But the difficulty for parents is to maintain the momentum. Um, and that's for a lot of reasons. And we can talk about some of those reasons today. Um, but just to give you one or two quick data points, um, you know, uh, the current population survey a few years ago did a supplemental survey, um, their civic engagement survey. And they asked people how reliably, how um, routinely do you show up for school board meetings, vote in school board elections? And one of the things that struck me was that all of the other groups that are supposedly have a lot of interest in education, whether those are parents or homeowners in the community, reliably trailed public school teachers 
uh, in the extent to which they said they took part in school board meetings and in which they voted in school board elections. And that gives a good barometer because the questions they're asked, how regularly are you engaged as opposed to, you know, just after COVID and all of these school closures, how engaged are you? So I think we really need to differentiate between episodic engagement uh, and sort of engagement that has uh, duration for the long haul. Well, you mentioned uh, teachers voting in local elections, and uh, you show that in your book, and uh, Terry Mo showed that in his book some time ago, that teachers are more likely to turn out to vote. That's not too surprising. Uh, but teachers are only about 2% of the electorate. How can that turn into a real power base in, in elections where you know 2% of the population is not likely to have that much power, or, or is it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I would say that we don't know as much as we should about the mechanics of necessarily what gives teachers unions power in school board elections, but we do know a few things. One is that we can't just look at teachers alone, even if they're three, four percent of a district. We also need to take into account their spouses or other relatives who may live in the district and that they are more likely to be receiving a message from their union that tries to get them to vote in a more singular way in these local elections, which gives them some organizing advantages. Another thing I would say is that it's not just about the election itself. Uh, a lot of the process takes place beforehand in terms of recruiting candidates on the front end to run for school board. And we do know that teachers unions are quite active on that front. Um, one of the data points that I discuss in my book is I draw on about 10 to 12 surveys of school board members over the past decade and a half. And I find that roughly 20 to 25% of all school board members in the United States are current or former K-12 educators. So basically, if you think about it, educators are to school boards what attorneys are to members of Congress. Um, so there are a lot of other avenues through which teachers unions can have influence in the decision makers that sit around that school board table that just aren't open to parents and less organized groups. Well, I know teacher unions endorse candidates for uh, local school boards. Uh, are those endorsements effective or are they just sort of pro forma things where the, you know this person's going to win anyhow, so you endorse them so that you can be on the winning side? That's a great question. So, um, yes, in the early 2000s, Terry Moe did a series of studies that established pretty conclusively that when the teachers unions select a candidate uh, and endorse them, that candidate is pretty likely to win. In fact, the endorsement is about as powerful a predictor that, uh, as the, of the candidate winning as is incumbency. Um, however, this does raise the question that you've alluded to here, which is, are the unions kind of front runners? Do they just pick the person who's likely to win because they're concerned that uh, they're gonna have to negotiate with this person? And in my recent um, study on this topic, I was able to dig a little deeper into this question um, because I assembled a, a data set of about 4,000 teacher union endorsements over a 15 to 20 year period. And what that allowed me to do was to follow the political success of candidates, the very same candidates over time. So we could see what happened when school board candidates ran, the same candidates ran with union support as to when they didn't run with union support. And that's, uh, and, and essentially what I found was that the union endorsement matters a great deal. If you're an incumbent and you anger the union and you lose the endorsement, you're much less likely to win in your next election. 
And if you're a challenger and you weren't able to get the union endorsement the first time you ran, if you're able to get that endorsement the second time you run, you too are also more likely to win. So it does seem that union endorsements have a powerful independent effect on helping to seat school board members. Well, that's definitely interesting. Uh, I am tempted to say, well, maybe the union, the candidate's a stronger candidate uh, for other reasons. Uh, maybe they lost the endorsement because they were in a scandal or the first time they ran, they were a newcomer and they hadn't established themselves. So uh, how do you deal with that kind yeah, of I'm I think that the, the the best evidence we can do is focus on those incumbents because you know in some pocket uh, in some small pockets maybe scandals uh, are at play but I think in general political science teaches us that incumbents who are in office tend to get more powerful over time so when I run that analysis just focusing on incumbents and what happens to those incumbents when they lose and controlling for a host of things going on in the district like education spending or test scores. Um, I still find that that union, the, the loss of that union endorsement for an incumbent matters a great deal. And, you know, there's no way we can't run an experiment here, unfortunately, and randomly assign who gets the union endorsement. So following the same candidates over time is about as good as we can do. But I think it's fair to say that there's no other group out there that's able to where we're able to see the bestowing of that endorsement uh, leading to such differentials in win rates. Well, I know this uh, is the case in California and uh, Terry Moe's book focused on California, but California, we all know, is this ridiculously uh, liberal state that has a very powerful teachers union, the California Teachers Association. So, you know, to show that that's happening in California is so simply like sort of, uh, you know, showing that carrots are good for, for your eyesight. Uh, uh, but but how about Florida? So Florida is this uh, right to work state. It's had conservative governors. It had Jeb Bush, which led a, a big education reform movement. He was no friend of unions whatsoever. Is there any evidence that if you get a conservative state that the unions have this kind of clout? Yeah, I think Florida is a good test because it's not the weakest union state in the country. It's not South Carolina or Mississippi, but yes, it's not California either. Um, and I was able to collect original endorsement data from teachers unions in Florida as well for about a decade from 2010 to 2020. Um, and I found that they win a little less than they win in California, but they still do pretty well, about two thirds of endorsed candidates in Florida uh, win their elections. Um, and it's not just that unions are weaker there um, to sort of step back and look at that as being a big deal. The other factor is that in Florida, their countywide school districts and elections are held on cycle or coterminous with regular November elections when turnout is higher. So even with those headwinds facing the unions, they still, when they make an endorsement, manage to be successful in that endorsement about two thirds of the time. So I think that's still pretty meaningful. And that tells us that their power isn't confined just to union-friendly California. So when did unions become powerful? How did they become powerful? Why are they so powerful? So let's just take your thesis as being correct, that unions have a lot more power than any other group in uh, state and local politics. Uh, your book actually shows this in a variety of different ways. But, but how did this happen? Well, I think there's two mechanisms to their power. One is sort of just structural. Um, and the other is um, is actually an interesting story of policy uh, feedback, that is the government playing a role in helping unions become powerful. The structural piece is quite simple. The United States spends 
seven, $800 billion a year in total on K through 12 education, which means that the employees of that system will always have a vested interest in being politically active because their occupational livelihood depends on it. So we always, you know, for just at a baseline level, public school employees are going to have more incentive to be active in politics than non-public school employees. But the other piece of it, which is what I focus on in my book, is that I show that beginning in the 1960s and especially into the 1970s, state governments in enacting mandatory public sector collective bargaining laws spearheaded an effort that essentially used public policy to empower teachers unions. And it did that in several ways. But um, the, the main thing I focus on in the book is that it helped teachers unions organize teachers who were scattered across schools and districts, helped them organize them into collective bargaining units, which is not only useful in terms of the efforts of collective bargaining to negotiate for higher salaries and benefits, but it's also helpful for mobilizing people in politics. When they're organized, when you can send them mailings to their school district mailbox, when you have them all in the same place, it basically created a constituency um, that led to teachers unions becoming quite powerful. And the other thing I would note um, that's important here is that this all happened before 1983. And that's important because it means that teachers unions got organized and they figured out how to mobilize teachers in state and local politics before the rise of the modern education reform movement. So when the reform movement came about to try and act as a counterweight to the power of teachers unions, they were already coming up upon a group that was pretty well embedded in the system. So there, and so what are some of the tools that they use to uh, mobilize teachers and to uh, uh, really effectuate their power? Is it, is it just simply they're negotiating at the collective bargaining table and they're able to negotiate a good settlement for their, for their members? Or is there something more to it than that? Yes. Yeah, so I think two pieces. The first is um, what you just alluded to, that they have a, a certain status that other groups don't have. Or we could just call this, they, um, by law in states that mandate collective bargaining, um, they have to have a seat at the table. And that's something that all interest groups want. So I think the best illustration for listeners, perhaps, is if we go back to um, the COVID school closures, uh, you go and read your school board minutes uh, in any state that had unions, and it would explain, look, you need a memorandum of understanding. You need to go back to the bargaining table to talk about issues related to safety, uh, to talk about how you're going to reopen. If you wanted to try and, say, do outdoor learning and try something different labor has to be a partner in that discussion. So the first way they're influential is just that local politicians, local school board members and superintendents have to bring them in as an interest group. And that's a real privilege. The second way though, um, more on how governmental policy really helped unions. And so a good example there is payroll deduction. Um, and so um, uh, maybe to circle back a little bit here to our discussion earlier about parents, um, there's a great movie um, uh, that came out several years ago um, on parent trigger laws, um, a Hollywood movie, not a documentary. And the storyline was pretty simple. It was about a mother who was trying to convert her child's school into a charter school. It was a failing school. And the film depicts all of the challenges that the woman faced. She had no list of parents that she could contact. She had to try and figure out where they live. She basically faced the classic collective action problem that sort of any um, nascent interest group faces. So what do you mean by the collective action problem? Meaning she's got to get parents to either invest their time or their money 
in trying to address school reform issues. And parents are busy. They have full, you know, day jobs. They're taking care of multiple kids. They don't have time to be engaged in education policy. And it might not make any difference if they do get engaged, right? And you can work your tail off and get absolutely nowhere. And at the same time, if you do nothing, you can get the benefit, even if, even if you rely on other people to do all the heavy lifting. Exactly. And, and so to contrast that with the situation that teachers unions find themselves in, a, a simple example is how teachers unions raise funds. Um, in most states, uh, teachers unions can take advantage of payroll deduction, which means the school district, your local government's school district payroll office deducts the dues for the teachers unions directly from a teacher's salary and forwards it on to union headquarters. That seems like a small arcane thing that shouldn't matter, but it's a significant advantage ensuring that the teachers union has a steady stream of revenue always available to it that it can call on when it needs to engage in electoral mobilizing or anything having to do with uh, mobilizing teachers to talk to the school board. So there's a whole host of features in law in labor law that help teachers unions as interest groups be um, effective mobilizers in a way that it, this isn't true for parents. And so if I could just make one other point about parents here that I think is important, the best evidence is if you go and read and you alluded to these parent groups during the COVID years, if you read eight years ago, there are a series of articles, some in Education Week, talking about the efforts to try and establish parent unions, essentially uh, an analog of teachers unions that would work on behalf of parents representing children. And a lot of the headlines talked about how this was this new movement trying to get parents involved in education. And what's remarkable is in the research for my book, I essentially found that same story playing out in the 80s. In the 70s, you could go back decade after decade. And what that tells me is that essentially the story of parent mobilizing is that you can find a graveyard of these organizations. They under the scene, maybe they stick around for a year or two, but invariably they fade away because they don't have those advantages in labor law that teachers unions do that keep them sticking around. So that's uh, that's a really interesting uh, point, but and it also brings up this uh, uh, Supreme Court decision or two Supreme Court decisions. There was the original Supreme Court decision, the Abbott case back in the 1970s, which basically said that if the collective bargaining agreement uh, requires that the uh, employee of the school system uh, must pay an agency fee if, if, it, if it doesn't join the union. So you either join the union or you have to pay a fee to cover the costs of that union representing you. Uh, and the Supreme Court said in the Abbott case back in the 70s, yes, that's a constitutional provision, but that's overturned in the Janus case. So in the Janus decision, the Supreme Court says that's a denial of the freedom of speech of the teacher. Teachers shouldn't be forced to pay a fee to the union if they don't really like what that union is doing. So the Supreme Court did a 180 degree turnaround on that. And when that new law came into effect, everybody said, okay, this is the end of unions in American politics. Without that agency fee, they're dead. So uh, they're still around. And uh, why is that? Great question. So I think a few things are going on. So Janice uh, comes out in 2018. And the first thing to kind of appreciate about it is that I wouldn't expect us to see a melting uh, or a hemorrhaging rather 
of union membership overnight for, for a few reasons. The first thing is that it's a lot uh, more difficult, I think, to build an intro, a, a membership advocacy organization than it is to try and fortify yourself after you've lost a benefit. Uh, like agency fees. So teachers unions, in a sense, can benefit from the fact that they can say, hey, we're under attack. They can almost use it uh, in the short term, I think, uh, to try and say, you know, don't leave, you're under attack from the right wing in the country, et cetera. Um, I do think over time it will matter. And I think it's mattered more in states where you've had uh, conservative groups that have tried to send mail to teachers telling them of their rights that they can leave the union. Um, in fact, it's very interesting. This has become a point of uh, political battle in state legislatures where Democratic lawmakers are trying to uh, pass laws that keep outside groups from informing teachers that they can leave their union and do the opposite, which is to ensure that the union has time at uh, new faculty meetings to pitch union membership to teachers. So now we're seeing a big fight over the information environment that teachers are in. So I do think Janice is a loss and I think they'll lose some members, but I don't think it's going to have the same effect that it did when, it came, when agency fees came on board in the 1970s and helped teachers unions organize themselves uh, um, and build up their organizations. Um, now, let me tell so you what you're sort of saying is that the hardest thing to do is to build an organization. Once you've got that organization in place, you can find all kinds of ancillary tools to keep it in place. So if you lose that original building tool, it's not as disastrous as if you'd never had it in the first place. Yes, that. And also we have to think about um, at sort of the very grassroots level. If you're a teacher who's been working for 10 years and you've been paying union dues and you see it go out of your paycheck, it's probably, you know, to continue on as a union member, um, unless you're very politically involved and have strong feelings about unions, um, and you're not just sort of a typical teacher, um, uh, then I think that um, you don't really notice that you're still paying. Whereas here's where it makes a difference. A new teacher who comes into the district and says, okay, would you like to join the union? If you do, this is what you'll pay. The union can no longer say, and if you don't join, you're still gonna have to pay this. I think for those new teachers, it may make a difference, but that's going to take a few years to actually affect the union membership's bottom line. Well, you know, Michael, I know you've looked at this merit pay question and performance pay question. And the Obama administration uh, encouraged states to uh, move to merit pay. And uh, that's something where the public is very supportive of the concept of, of uh, a good teacher should be paid more and teachers who aren't effective shouldn't get that same salary bump. Uh, so, uh, you know, there was a lot of popular support for this, but this was probably more bitterly opposed, not only by teacher unions, but by ordinary rank and file teachers as well. They do not like merit pay. They are, this is something they don't like. So this is something that uh, the Obama administration pushed, which is interesting. And it is also something which was enacted in many states. So if you, have such powerful unions, how did we get performance pay? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do think that, um, uh, so that story proceeds in two ways. The first is that we're in a very unusual political moment when that all came together. So it was in the aftermath of the Great Recession, uh, President Obama comes into office, and you essentially had a political coalition that was put together 
um, between uh, anti-union conservatives who've long been in favor of merit pay and, and the average member of the public too. And then you finally had Democrats for education reform who were interested in pushing for these ideas too. And the unions were in a very weak position. I mean, these were the days of Scott Walker and Chris Christie. The unions were really on the run. Um, and so you had all these enactments coincide, of course, with race to the top. So states were desperate for any federal money they could get, and they sort of made this deal. But the second part of that story is that the devil is in the details. And that is, even though a lot of states made aggressive reforms to teacher pay, and especially teacher evaluation, where we saw we went from something like five or six states that required student test scores to be a factor in teacher evaluation to about 40 states where that was the case. And on first blush, I talk about this in my book, this looks like Armageddon for the teachers union. It's like they've lost. And you ask quite uh, wisely here, well, how can they lose if they're so powerful? And I think this is where we have to turn back to the school board elections piece or to the local politics piece, that the firewall that protected them all, all through this process was at the local level where you had to actually implement these state policy reforms that said, okay, you need to redesign teacher pay to include a teacher's performance. And so the unions took a lot of strategies here. They filed lawsuits in states like New Mexico. Um, they made it clear to superintendents and school board members, like you said, that they were very against this. And so when the rubber met the road and we actually step back and see what happened, take teacher evaluation, very few teachers were actually given low evaluation. And even fewer teachers were actually relieved of their jobs for performing poorly on these value-added measures. Now, one can say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but the bottom line is the unions really didn't lose this war. At the end of the day, they were able to survive because they're powerful in the trenches in the local school districts. Well, looking forward, we uh, see a midterm election coming up. The conservatives think they're going to win across the board. Republicans are very optimistic. Democrats are frightened to death. Uh, the president's uh, ratings are way down. Um, is this a time where unions are under threat? Maybe they haven't been threatened before, but without the Janus, with the Janus decision now on the books and with uh, these new parent groups are rising. Are we seeing the end with a sweep across the country that could be quite damaging to the liberal coalition? Do we now see the day of the union coming to an end? I don't think so. I think the unions are going to be here for a long time to come. I don't really think that much that happens in this federal election will matter. Obviously, at the state level, it will matter a lot more. Um, but, you know, if you look at a lot of, you know, people have been talking about how the past year is the year of school choice. But if you look at a lot of the reform bills that have come out, a lot of them have already happened in states where teachers unions are on the weaker side. And so it's almost the reverse of what we probably see on abortion policy, where the blue states just keep enacting more legislation that's pro-choice and the red states do the opposite. We're going to see the same thing. Um, in school choice and education reform. I think one thing that's different though here is that um, that alliance that you saw between small government Tea Party type conservatives with teachers unions uh, allying against common core and standardized testing, I don't think that's gonna be as strong going forward. I don't think those groups have as much incentive to work together. Um, but no, I think unions are going to be around and I think uh, local school board elections are still in many parts of the country held at odd times of the year when people aren't paying much attention to politics. And that's a real boon to the union. So I think they'll still continue to be very powerful at the state and local levels. 
Well, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up a point that I've emphasized over the course of uh, many years, and that is that people can move if they don't like what's going on in their school district. And so the ultimate power of the parent or the family or the citizen is in local politics, especially, is to say, okay, if the unions are taking control here, I'm out. And families are doing that. They're leaving New York City for the suburbs. They're leaving Cleveland for the suburbs. They're leaving Detroit. They're leaving Minneapolis. They're, they are saying no to schools that are being run by unions for the well-being of employees instead of for the well-being of students. Or at least many people seem to feel that way. And they're voting with their feet. How can the unions maintain power against people who can move with their feet? Yeah, I mean, and I would also add to that looking at Catholic school enrollment, which had a nice boost in 2021-2022 after having dropped during the pandemic when a lot of families were probably saying, I may not have the tuition money to send my kid to a private school. I mean, again, I think that that is true, um, but I would say that moving across town to a different school district is probably something that is manageable for a lot of families. Perhaps leaving a state entirely is a little bit harder, though maybe the exodus that we see from California or other states, it's somewhat possible. Um, I think it's really gonna be up to school choice advocates, um, not just to pass school choice legislation, but to really address the supply issue because you can have all the choice in the world, but if there aren't a robust supply of schools, whether those be affordable private Catholic schools high-performing charter schools, any sort of school of choice. If there aren't enough choices for families, uh, then simply passing a law that says people have a choice isn't going to do as much as it could. So that's an area where I think the education reform community really needs to focus on. It's not just about giving the choice, it's about making sure there are good choices. Well, uh, well said, and thank you for this illuminating conversation about the role of uh, teacher unions in American education, uh, Michael. So thank and congratulations on your new book. Thank you, Paul. Good to be with you as always. I've been speaking with Michael Hartney, a professor at Boston College and a Hoover Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. His forthcoming book, How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education is soon to be published by the University of Chicago Press. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.